behold the genius Lanny Popper, the world's smartest man. Sometimes what goes on behind the scenes is stronger than the soap opera on the video school. Hi gang, this is Mean Gene Okerlund. Welcome to the Genius Cast with Lottie Poffel and J.P. Zarka. Both, as you know, are very dear, close, personal, longtime friends. Ladies and gentlemen, the poet and limerick writing, motivational speaking brother of WWE Hall of Famer Randy Savage, the genius, Leaping Lanny Poffle! Hello again, wrestling fans. This is Lanny Poffle. Welcome to the Genius Cast. And this is my long personal friend... J.P. Zarka of ProWrestlingStories.com. And what do you guys think of our updated intro? Well, when you get a vote of confidence from the great Mean Gene Okerlund, I think we are achieving a high class. Absolutely. He's one of our listeners. He's also a good friend of ours. And as a fan, absolute treat for him to say that. I get goosebumps hearing him even say my name. But we can't thank him enough for sending that in to us. Stay tuned. We might even have a bit more from him real soon on our show. He's a friend of the Genius Cast. And uh, I'll tell you what, he's always been nice to me since 1985. And how about some of the interviews that Randy made with Gene Okerlund with the cup of coffee in the big time, yeah. The two of them had rapport like no other. That's true. I'll tell you what, uh, when Gene Okerlund likes you, you're in high cotton. And what does that mean? You never heard of that expression? No, I've never heard of high cotton. Okay, it's like a Confederate expression. Like gone with the wind. You're in high cotton now, which means uh, you're living high off the hog. Or you're, you know, it's like, it's very uppity. Speaking of uppity, we're doing fantastic with our show. We're getting a lot of new listeners each week. A lot of people are discovering us on our new YouTube page. Go on YouTube.com, search The Genius Cast with Lanny Poffo, and you're going to see clips from every show that we've done so far, as well as our social medias at The Genius Cast at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. That's right, and I'd like to make a little advertisement here because I've been working for Boomers of America for about four years, and... Frankie Allen honored me and you with a full-page ad. So go on Boomers of America, that's Boomers with a Z, B-O-O-M-E-R-Z of America.com. And I've been writing for them for, like I say, four or five years. Uh, I'm a freelance writer on my spare time. And um, it's reaching the Woodstock generation. You're a Woodstock generation person uh, I don't think you were born from 1946 to 1963, were you, JP? No, but my mom was, and she was definitely from that Woodstock era. Excellent. But uh, that doesn't mean uh, if you happen to be a little too young, you can't check it out anyway. Boomersofamerica.com. Thank you so much for doing that. So, Lanny, I just got back from Chicago a few hours ago, and the jet lag's not as bad as I thought. Usually I come home and I take like a three, four-hour nap and screw it all up. But it's weeks like the one that I just had in Chicago that make me realize that living away from Chicago in the winter may not be such a bad thing. We had over a foot of snow the other day. Did you hear about the snowstorm that hit? Most of the United States got it except for Florida, where I live. It was really bad. It knocked out the electricity for 20 hours and cable and internet for three days. It was like living in the dark ages. Do you miss those Chicago winters? Absolutely not. I um, I don't like it too hot or too cold. I like it just right, like Goldilocks. Now, I don't blame you. I mean, the video that we put up for uh, promoting this week's episode, you're on the beach in a t-shirt and shorts. Absolutely jealous. Yes, get jelly, my friend, jelly. 
<laughs> we got some great news over the past few days, and that's our good friend and past Genius Cast guest, Jim Duggins, home from the hospital. I've been praying for him and calling him and bothering him, and he's doing fantastically, and I'll be seeing him in February in the New England area. We're very happy to know that he's in good health. He's back home now with his wonderful wife, and he's got his daughters by his side as well, and we've been keeping track of how he's been doing, and Jim, on the mend, my friend, and onwards and upwards. Yes, and uh, go back and uh, listen to the podcast, The Genius Cast, when we had Jim Duggan as a guest. And uh, I'll tell you what, what a great job he did for us. One of the best shows we've done so far. And speaking of great shows, we just had Jeff Jarrett last week on our show. Jeff held nothing back. He was such a good sport, and he almost had me pissing my pants. So, JP, what's this about taking the WWE hostage? Did I have a gun? Oh, my God, he got me there. But, no, it's truly awesome show. Go back and listen if you haven't already. If it wasn't for Jerry Jarrett, um, the Poffos wouldn't have amounted to much because Jerry Jarrett opened the door for the Macho Man and for Leaping Lanny, and then we went to New York. You know, he was um, just excellent about it. And Randy, uh, Jerry Jarrett even says Randy's the most honorable person he'd ever met because he went up to him and he says, I'm not going to WWF unless I give you full notice, how much do you need? He says, two weeks is enough. I just need to take the belt off of you and that's it. What a fantastic thing because most wrestlers would just uh, up and leave with the belt. Right. Jerry Jarrett is uh, a friend of the Poffo family and Jeff Jarrett is also. And um, since I'm the last man standing in the Poffo family, I want to honor the people that have honored us. You could just hear from Jeff's stories how much he loved the Poffo family. He had wonderful stories to share. And in our interview, he sounds like a fan, you know, just talking about the business and growing up, being around it and, you know, the Attitude Era and everything else. And just his memories of Randy really made me smile. Go back to last week's episode. You're going to love it. Absolutely. And uh, like I say, um, Jeff Jarrett's got a great enthusiasm for wrestling still. And so do I. And you know what? That's what we bring to the table in the Genius Cast. Absolutely. So Jake Roberts was recently on Joe Rogan's Experience podcast. A fantastic show, by the way. Check it out if you haven't. And he said a few things that you told me off air that were, and I quote, bullshit. The mic is yours. The mic is mine. Well, when I was in New Orleans, okay, for WrestleCon, which is adjunct to, which is the last time I saw Nikolai Volkov alive. He died a few months later. And uh, I heard a scream and it was um, Harry Smith threw hot coffee in the face of Jake Roberts. For what reason? Um, Harry's the nicest person I ever met. He's the son of Davy Boy Smith. But um, Jake Roberts was lying about his father on one of these podcasts. And of course, he heard about it and he threw the hot coffee and you can't do that. And uh, I'm not going to throw hot coffee in Jake Roberts' face. One of my favorite people in the world is Diamond Dallas Page. And if it wasn't for Diamond Dallas Page, Jake Roberts would have died at least five years ago. But the resurrection of Jake the Snake was all on account of one of the saints of the wrestling industry, Diamond Dallas Page. So I don't want to do anything to upset that. All I'm going to say is this. For every cockroach you see, there's about a hundred more. Because they all got brothers and sisters and uncles, you know what I mean? They're, they lay their eggs, you know, so be careful when you get a cockroach. Well, lying is just like that, okay? And uh, 
I give Jake credit for having a very entertaining interview with Rogan. And uh, everything he said about Randy was false. Is that all right to say? Because sorry to break your fun, but I was there. Okay, we're talking about when the King Cobra bit Randy on the arm. I can't prove anything I'm saying, but I can prove one thing. He says, he tried to say, uh, maybe wanting to get the intercontinental belt off me by killing me. And that's stranger things have happened, whatever he said. In other words, he said, get the intercontinental belt off of him. Anybody that knows anything about the history of wrestling knows that Randy lost the intercontinental belt in 1987. And this didn't happen till the early nineties. So he missed it by about three years. So that's one lie. And take my word for it. Everything else was false and fake, but entertaining. Sometimes stories take on their own little journey. And as the years go by, details go a bit lost. Yeah, I'll tell you what. He was. I like Jake. He was a great worker and a great interview and had a hell of a gimmick. I enjoyed working with him. But he's one of a million guys that uh, made a fortune in wrestling and have to go on GoFundMe, Indiegogo, and all that stuff. You know what I'm saying? And uh, if you got a hole in the bucket, it doesn't matter how much water is in the bucket. It's all going on the sand. And nobody learns from it. So I try to indicate that to the people listening to this. But I realize all my advice is going on the sand. Never give advice because wise men don't need it and fools won't heed it. Well, I have to say, I think a lot of listeners do appreciate your advice, so please keep them coming. Okay, I'll just try not to stay on the pontification soapbox too often. But uh, anyway, you had some other questions for me before we get into the really big shoe. Yes, we got two great emails that we received over the past week, and the first one comes from Newfoundland, Canada. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. How do you say Newfoundland? Okay, here's what we do. Say the word understand. Understand. Now say Newfoundland. 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 Okay, I hope I don't botch this. I apologize in advance if I do. If Newfoundland understands, same thing. The email reads, Hey Lanny and JP, let me take a moment and thank you both for a very entertaining podcast in the Genius Cast. I'd like to start off by saying I'm very much a fan of Lanny Poffo from his early WWF career up until today. My father and I had the privilege to meet Lanny during WrestleMania weekend in Orlando two years ago at WrestleCon Mania Moments Luncheon. This was the first WrestleMania my father and I ever attended, and it was a big bucket list item for me. One of the fondest memories of that weekend from the luncheon was specifically meeting and chatting with Lanny. Lanny spent a great deal of time with us and truly looked engaged and happy to be there unlike the others. He also allowed my father the opportunity to wear Randy Savage's Hall of Fame ring, which my dad still talks about to this day. The one thing that stuck out to me was how Lanny fondly remembered his time traveling and wrestling. Lanny was one of the first WWF wrestlers ever to tour our island. He was on the very first card I ever attended as a kid in the Clarenville Stadium in my hometown of Clarenville. Going back to meeting at the luncheon, we told Lanny where we were from and he recited his story about his visit to our island where he ate cod tongues for the first time and he even sang a local traditional Newfoundlander folk song to us word for word without missing a beat. To say we were impressed would be an understatement and I'd like to let Lanny know how much it meant to us that weekend and with all that pomp and circumstance going around mania, it was that memory that we still talk about. I am uncertain about his opponent that night in Clarenville, but it was either Richard Charland or Frenchie Martin. 
I'd like to test Lanny's memory to see if he can remember who his opponent was, and I'd love to hear the story of his trip to Newfoundland that he referenced on the Randy Savage in the Hall of Fame episode. That was our first episode. Take care, Chris Bailey. Thank you for that email, Chris. Now let's test your brain power, Lanny, here. And do you remember who you wrestled that evening? Yes, it was Frenchie Martin. The latter, not the former. There you go. The former, not the latter. Whatever the... I can't remember now. <laughs> yeah, my brain's not working right now, so I trust you. Yeah, you just flew in from Chicago. What's my excuse? <laughs> The Genius Cast faithful have been writing in trove saying how much they enjoyed your spontaneous singing. Let's hear you sing that Newfoundland folk song. It goes like this. What was? See, I know several Newfoundland folk songs, but I think the one they're talking about is Eyes the Buys the Bills the Boats and Eyes the Buys the Sails Her, Eyes the Buys the Catches the Fish and Sends them Home to Lizer. Hip your partner Sally Tabo, hip your partner Sally Brown, Fogo Twillingate Morton's Harbor, all around the circle. Cods and rinds to cake, cover your flake. Cake and tea for supper. Codfish in the spring of the year, fried in maggoty butter. I don't want your maggoty fish. That's no good for winter. I can buy better than this. Down in Bonavista, I took my Lizer to the dance. Had faith that she could travel. But every step that Lizer took, she was up to her arse and gravel. Ah. That's A-R-S-E, arse. Right. That's awesome. I love that. Keeping our listenership happy with a bit of a sing-song. Our second email came from listener Chris Costner. He just recently heard our Andre the Giant episode, and he felt bad that you didn't even get a thank you note for blading all those years back on Saturday night's main event. So he wrote one, and actually he wrote it on a thank you card, and he sent it to us as an attachment, and it read, Mr. Poffo, thank you for your contributions to Andre the Giant's popularity during the build-up to WrestleMania three. As a fan, I greatly appreciate it. And then he signed his name. Thank you for that, Chris. How wonderful was that? Chris, I want to tell you something. You know who's better than a wrestler and better than the promoter? You are. You're the wrestling fan. And it means a lot to me that it meant so much to you. We're going to go into our interview with Keith Elliott Greenberg. For those who do not know, he's a TV producer and New York Times bestseller. You may have read some of his work, particularly pro wrestling from carnivals to cable TV. Rick Flair's biography entitled To Be the Man, and Classy Freddy Blassie's Listen, You Pencil Neck Geeks. We're thrilled to bring you this interview now. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I give you Keith Elliott Greenberg, the Shakespeare of the WWE. Keith, it's been a long time. How are you? Good, Lanny. It's always great to talk to you. Now tell the fans who the hell you are. Okay. Uh, Lanny and I know each other for probably a good 30 years now. We met when Lanny was in WWE and I was a writer for their monthly magazines. I then went on to write, co-write the autobiographies of Freddie Blassie, Ric Flair, Superstar Billy Graham, and the unpublished autobiography of the Iron Sheik, as well as in 2016, the third edition of the WWE Encyclopedia of Sports Entertainment. Now, don't be modest. Tell them all the other writing you've done. Well, I um, I uh, wrote a book about the death of John Lennon called uh, December 8th, 1980, the day John Lennon died. I've written a number of true crime books. And uh, just this month, I co-wrote a book with a uh, rock and roll drummer named Tom Steven about his experience uh, in the Jeff Healy band. For those who don't know, Jeff Healy was one of the best blues guitarists who ever lived. He was blind and a Canadian icon. Wow, 
And uh, I remember uh, you wrote my first article about Leaping Lanny. You know, hey, pal, that's a manner most foul. That's right. I, I think I did another one about you bulking up that was called Loading His Leap. Yes, I remember that. And uh, the other thing, too, um, a lot of articles were written about my brother when he passed. Yours was the best. My mother loved your article. Tell about that. Well, I really appreciate that. And I couldn't have done that if you hadn't been gracious enough to invite me into your into your home. I know your mother was suffering quite a bit at the time. She'd lost her husband and she'd lost her firstborn son. And I appreciated the way she was very open about the life of being the macho man's mother. And I think that it was a little cathartic for her. She laughed. She told some funny stories. She spoke about being a spouse in the wrestling business and the mother of two professional wrestlers. And I believe that by the time I left, she was in a pretty good mood. And another thing she liked about you, she liked your last name better than your first name. I know, because we, uh, she and I share certain ancestry. Yes, she was a Jew. Indeed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we used to tease her a little bit about that. But, yeah. um, you know, that was, uh, if she didn't, if she would have stopped laughing, I would have stopped joking. That's the thanks I get for all I've done for you. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about Freddie Blassie. Now, you wrote his biography and you were the ghostwriter, am I right? I wasn't the ghostwriter, I was the co-author. The co-author. And Freddie uh, had a tendency to exaggerate just a little, didn't he? He did. And so uh, we decided to make that part of the book. And it he actually ended up being very open and vulnerable and honest as the book went on. But all his exaggerations about how when he was wrestling Ricky Dozan in Japan, a hundred Japanese people dropped dead of heart attacks because uh, the match was, the matches were so gory. Um, he said that even at 85 years old, women would stop on the street and just gawk at him because he was God's gift to women. And he'd go, and you should have seen me 50 years ago. Um, but he also spoke quite a bit about his life in the wrestling business and even his personal life. And I remember when I was working on the book, Linda McMahon came over to me. And as you know, the McMahons and uh, Blassie were extremely close. And she said, I didn't realize that Freddie had kids because Freddie was estranged from two of his children. And so sadly, the McMahon family had never met Freddie's kids. Wow. You know, uh, recently I was in Japan and I met the wife of Ricky Dozan. And, um, you know, she spoke English like a three on a scale of 10. And I mentioned Freddie Blassie. And, you know, just talking to her about the old days because my father had introduced Ricky Dozan to uh, my brother and I. Uh, I was seven and he was nine. And uh, she started crying. And I gave her a hug and everything. And I felt like a crying too, you know. But uh, these are the old days. And, um, of course, Freddie Blassie was one of the great opponents of Ricky Dozan. And that's when... People died of heart attacks, but um, yeah, Fred exaggerates just a little. And uh, tell about um, Bruno San Martino and Freddie Blassie, because that's a great story. Uh, and you're the only man alive that knows the truth about the mob and uh, Freddie. Well, according to Freddie, uh, Bruno, 
who never had any dealings with the mob himself that he knew of because Bruno, as you know, was a pretty righteous guy. And I don't say righteous sarcastically. Uh, he was very pure hearted, as you remember. And uh, but Bruno had people who would latch themselves on to him. And some of these people, according to Freddie, were mobsters. Uh, Bruno wasn't really aware of what they did in their private lives. But Freddie would go into the back and he would see Bruno surrounded by his admirers and he would just start cutting a promo on them. And back then, if you were cutting a promo on an Italian-American, you would say things like grease ball and spaghetti bender. And these guys would stand up and Bruno would, you know, realize that these guys were probably packing heat. And he would say, let me take care of this in the ring, <laughs> you know, to, to save Freddie's life. Right. I was just thinking about my grandfather, the Italian guy, Nono and Nana, you know, and uh, the Italian side of my family. And he worked for Western Electric and his English was he was just learning English. And he was hearing people say, I tell you this and I tell you that. He said, what do you mean Italian? What do you want us all to live? What do you mean? But a boop it bop. You know, like Italian people get angry quickly. Yes, but it's funny you say he'd say, I tell you this and I tell you that. And that's how Bruno used to talk in his promos. He goes, I tell you this. Yeah, but he thought it meant Italian. Oh, I didn't realize that. You know, they were just looking for an opportunity to feel offended. I see. You know, I remember you telling me uh, a term, a Sicilian term, Giacco di Mani, Giacco di Villani. The joke of a hand is the joke of a villain. Explain what that meant. Do you remember? Yeah, that means, uh, you know, I can have fun with you if I want. But as soon as I touch you or your stuff, I'm a villain. Like, you know how, you know, people die from horseplay. You know, my, uh, like in the swimming pool, I might hold you under. And you know, if you think that's funny or they push comes to shove, you know what I mean? And in other words, when you touch another person, you're on thin ice. Yeah, I, I remember we were talking about this. It was the day after, and I don't remember where we were on the road, but the boys were playing some pretty vicious ribs on each other, and they were shredding each other's clothes and breaking into each other's rooms, and you wanted nothing to do with that. You didn't believe in taking anybody's stuff, uh, you know, vandalizing anybody's gear, and that's when you said, Giacco di Mani, Giacco di Villani. Yes, I wrestled for about five years as Leaping Lanny, then I did The Genius, and then after WrestleMania six, I got very friendly invitation. Good luck in my future endeavors. We love you, but we don't, we're going to love you someplace else. And then about six months later, John Tolis either quit or was fired. And then I came back as the genius managing the Beverly Brothers. But then Randy says, yeah, here's the deal. Uh, be careful with your uh, cap and gown because people are using suitcases for toilets. I said, who's doing that? He says, fuck, who isn't doing that? You know, it's like, so my first day back in Syracuse at the War Memorial, uh, I hid my cap and gown and equipment so well that I couldn't find it myself for about an hour. But you had good reason to. Right. I was, I was, but the thing is, I was never ribbed in the WWE or WWF. And if you don't know why, I hate to break it to you. They weren't afraid of me. They were afraid of my brother, and it was going to be real, real bad for you. 
Now, that's an interesting thing. Your brother was never ribbed, yet Flair would get ribbed. And this was a guy they revered. They, they idolized Flair, and yet they would rib Flair. But I think he enjoyed the horseplay himself. See, Ric Flair was a totally different personality than my brother. Ric Flair liked to get in the mud and splash it around, too. And if you indicate that that's the kind of a guy you are, you know, that's then they're going to respond to you like that. But my brother was a no-nonsense person in a world full of nonsense. And he wouldn't tolerate any nonsense whatsoever. And then, you know, of course, if I look at you like with intent, uh, you're not nervous at all. But if Randy did it, you would soil yourself. You see what I mean? That's the, he was the scary one. I was not scary. But um, if my father found out that I was ribbing people, he, oh man, that would be the end of that. Well, what was your father's position about ribbing? Like, had you, I'm sure you guys had discussed it. How did, what was his point of view when it came to that? He thought it was a low grade form of bullying, you know, and it was ridiculous. And, um, you know, he stayed away from that end of the business and he taught us to do the same. I can truthfully say I've never ribbed anyone. And, um, and I, I'm not going to start now, you know, now that I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to be 64 in December. I'm, it's a little too late to start ribbing. You know, it's, it's funny. I remember you, you just mentioned John Tolis. And John Tolis, now it's coming back to me. The reason John Tolis left his manager was because somebody had ribbed him. I believe they had shit in his sneaker. And John Tolis got mad and he, he was going to, he was threatening to burn down people's homes with their children inside. And if, if memory serves me correctly, that's why John Tolis might have been shown the door. The thing is, he said it with a lot of people in the locker room. You know, like, uh, whoever did that, I'll burn your house down with your kids in it. Of course, um, turned out to be a big break for me because, you know, there's a lot of people waiting by the phone hoping to get booked. And I was just delighted to get back in the WWE. And, um, but the thing is, what a nightmare. You, I mean, you know something, if you were the kind of a guy that you would, do you think I would have invited you in my mother's home if you were the kind of guy to use suitcases for toilets no i don't think you would have no i don't think so nor would randy have invited me into his car when he used to sometimes graciously offer to give me a ride from one town to another and i don't think he had a lot of tolerance for people who didn't respect others bodies or property well i'll give you a, a fine line here um he let nikolai ride with him but not the iron sheik and you know exactly the reason why, okay? And uh, Nikolai was a gentleman from the word go. And uh, the Iron Sheik, oh, you stupid motherfucker. You know, you know what I mean? It's just um, two kinds of people. And um, so tell me more about Freddie Blassie because the fans are curious. You co-wrote the book. And I'll tell you what, my father was very dear friends with Freddie. Uh, they were together in Atlanta and uh, tag teamed. And um, when I was in Hawaii in 1967 and 68, I was 12 turning 13. Can you imagine me uh, just uh, with all those testosterones coming into my body and all these girls on Waikiki Beach? 
coming out uh, obscenely into their bikinis. But I needed some relief somehow, you know what I'm saying, from all this. And Freddie Blassie, he always had about three girls around him. And then he said, Lanny, come over here. And he says, here's some money. Get me an Orange Julius and uh, give me four Orange Juliuses. So I get three, uh, Freddie and the two girls, and the others for you. And I said, no, and I was playing it small. No, no, thank you. I don't want it. Okay, then I'm going to pour it on the sand. I said, no, I'll take it. I'll take it, you know. And Orange Julius was like um, fresh squeezed orange juice with um, coconut milk in there. And let me tell you, it was good. But it was 75 cents per cup. And handsome Johnny Barron used to say, stay away from the money, Annie. He says, there's the water fountain. You know what I mean? In other words, you know, he was real cheap. Well, Orange Julius, that was great. I wonder if they still got him there. Well, you know, I remember they used to sell Orange Julius in Coney Island. They used to sell it in containers. But by the time I would get it, it would be warm. It wasn't like the Orange Julius you're describing. Um, Interestingly, Freddie Blassie could possibly uh, spend money on Orange Juliuses because Freddie Blassie shunned alcohol. So he saved a lot of money that way. I'm sure he spent a lot of money, too. I'm fairly certain of it. Oh, he's, you know, he spent a fortune and he was, uh, let's put it this way. He's not a good money manager. And, uh, you know, of course, being a Papo, um, I have a very strict uh, idea about that. But, um, you know, everybody accuses my father of being thrifty, my mother, blah, blah, blah. Nobody was worse than me. Okay. I was the worst of them all. And, um. I've got socks that are older than you, okay? <laughs> so anyway. And, and and you're not that much older than me. How old are you? Uh, 59. Oh, man. 59. Well, I demand respect from you, young man. That's right. You know? <laughs> now, here's an interesting thing. I got very close with Freddie Blassie. It was the last year of his life, and he seemed to understand that this was the end, and this was his chance to tell his life story. And he had notebooks that he had kept with beautiful cursive handwriting, notebook after notebook after notebook, keeping track of his matches and some of the anecdotes. And, you know, had I started on this project a little while later, I might have never, you know, seen any of that. And, uh, you know, he was able to he was slowing down, but he was able to rally and get all those stories out. And that's why, as much as he might have been bragging and exaggerating, he also did want to uh, be accurate in in certain ways. And there were, you know, rivalries that modern fans don't remember, like his rivalry with Don McIntyre in Georgia, which I guess would have been in the 1950s. And had Freddie Blassie retired before his big run in L.A. started, Fans in Georgia would have, you know, these romanticized memories of Freddie Blassie's feud with Don McIntyre. It was also interesting that he wanted to make it clear that he had regret uh, about being an absentee father. And when I was at Freddie Blassie's wake, his cousin came over to me and Freddie Blassie died three weeks after the book was released. And, um, She told me that Freddie's oldest son had read the book, saw his apology, and was ready to make peace with him. But Freddie had died before they could speak. Wow. You know, that 
that's really something. And, uh, oh, man, you know, here's what I remember. In Hawaii, um, Nick Bachwinkle was very nice to me at the age of 12 and 13. Freddie Blassie was nice to me. Uh, Jim Haiti was nice. Um, and uh, But nobody was nicer than Nick Bachwinkle and Freddie Blassie. They actually spent time with me and treated me like an adult. And, you know, I remember these things. And that's the reason, you know, when I came to the WWE in 1985, uh, Freddie remembered me and, uh, you know, he was starting to have his decline. And um, I thought, well, this is a good time for me to have time for him now. When a lot of the wrestlers uh, just didn't, you know, Captain Lou Albano and Freddie Blassie kind of kept to themselves. And the younger crowd, you know, kind of not ostracized them, but you know what I'm saying. They formed cliques. They, they were different generation. Yes. Freddie and Lou, as you remember, they had kind of this um, love-hate friendship where they would complain about each other and criticize each other and curse at each other. And then they'd leave together. They always seemed to be intertwined with each other. Well, one of the reasons that Freddie never drank is um, they did a some type of a surgery on him in Hawaii. Yeah, he had, he had, if I'm correct, I believe he had a kidney removed. Yes, but it was not necessary. They ruined his kidney. Mm. Uh, it was an errant, I mean, he should have sued and gotten rich from that because uh, this was absolute malpractice. I don't know all the details, but I'm just telling you, um, I remember him telling me the story and... Uh, Boy, what a great education to be 12 and 13 years old and listening to Freddie Blassie on the beach with girls around telling about his kidneys, you see? Yeah, well, you know, it's another reason why Freddie didn't drink was that his father was a very nasty alcoholic. And he he hated his father for, for uh, not having that kind of self-control and being abusive toward Freddie's mother, who Freddie adored. Um, interestingly, Freddie told me that uh, towards the end of Gorgeous George's life, he wanted to tag team with Freddie Blassie. And Fred, by then, as you remember, Gorgeous George was kind of a broken down man. Your father had been very kind to Gorgeous George, but Gorgeous George had a drinking problem. And Freddie Blassie did not want to have a partnership with Gorgeous George. He, it was too close to home, and he didn't want that alcoholism to bring him down. And he later felt the same way about Don Carson. He really didn't have tolerance for people who had drinking problems. And superstar Billy Graham told me, now that I'm thinking about it, that Freddie at first was very cold to Billy Graham because Billy Graham came in with Dr. Jerry Graham, who also had a problem with, uh, with uh, imbibing. Well, I don't think in my life anybody had a problem with imbibing than Dr. Jerry Graham. This guy was, I mean, he was, there's no reason he should have lived the last 15 years of his life. He should have uh, pickled himself. You know, he would, um, if you had some cologne in your, uh, in your bag, you know, he would take it and drink it or rubbing alcohol. You know, I mean, when you're doing that, that's sick. You know? and, and I think it may have been combined with some mental illness. Now, realize I also wrote Superstar, co-wrote Superstar Billy Graham's book. And so I heard all the Dr. Jerry Graham stories from him. And there's the very famous story 
about when Dr. Jerry Graham's mother died. Do you know that story? Yes, but I want you to tell it. Well, Dr. Jerry Graham was quite distraught when Dr. Jerry Graham's mother died. So he stormed into the hospital with a gun and he uh, took his mother's limp body off of the gurney and slung it over his shoulder. His son was with him and he held police at bay until he finally gave up. Now, the irony of that was Dr. Jerry Graham was later the gimmick brother of superstar Billy Graham. In real life, while Dr. Jerry Graham was holding every all those people hostage, superstar Billy Graham's shoot brother, his actual brother from his mother, was one of the police officers outside. Wow, that is some heavy, heavy stuff. We just started talking and you're already one of the most interesting interviews I've ever met, okay? Because you just know it all, you know what I'm saying? A lot of those stories that I that I tell over and over again came from you. We spent a lot of time driving, driving around together. Well, what I'm really proud of is that uh, I shared some stories secondhand with you and you validated them through Freddie Blassie and it got in his book. For example, are you familiar with a certain peculiarity of Argentina Rocca? I certainly am. And the, now the truth was, you had told me that story and um, about Argentina Rocca being uh, unusually well endowed. In fact, I remember the discussion. It was me, you, and in the back seat was Miguel Alonso, the, uh, the Spanish wrestling announcer. Uh, do you remember he would sometimes travel with us? Yes, and I'll tell you what, um, he's the only one that actually saw his appendage. And see, I, I only got it from hearsay. And of course, it, every time I heard a story, it was all exaggeration. You see what I mean? But Alonzo actually saw it. Yes, he actually theorized that maybe Rocca had a touch of uh, giantism which is why certain parts of his body, not just his uh, private parts, but his chin were so large. I think he referred to him as a handsome monster. If I exactly. He had, his, he had a prominent nose, his hands, his feet. All it, You know what it looked like to me um, in the picture? I never even met Rocca, but I've seen pictures of him. He looked like a classic case of too much testosterone, which would cause enlargement of whatever it is that in other words he was more of a man than it was humanly possible you had told me the story about Antonina Rocca and then what happened was I um so I knew the story about Rocca being exceptionally well endowed and I asked Blassie about it so I insert I would not have had that section of the Blassie book had you not told me about Rocca but then once I asked Blassie about it, Blassie had plenty of colorful things to say as well. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I felt like I planted a seed there. You know what I mean? <laughs> That'll be my legacy. <laughs> this guy knew about But see, the thing is, um, Alonzo had seen it. The only people that could have seen it are people that are... Um, that would have been around. Yeah, older than me. And the most important story that I want to brush off of you was... Um, my father told me that um, Schaefer Beer sponsored um, professional wrestling with Antonino Rocca, and Rocca was the um, announcer because at that time 
you know, he was getting a little long in the tooth, if I could use an expression, you know, a little aged to be wrestling. And uh, he, so he was just the, the host. And they would do their uh, wrestling in the Sunnyside Gardens. Sunnyside Gardens, yes. And and, and this, just to make this clear, this was an outlaw territory that was running opposition to Vince McMahon Sr. in Tootsmont, I believe, at the time. Exactly. And they were using talent like uh, Sweet Hansen or Rip Hawk. And uh, a lot of the people from Charlotte would come up there for a payday. Right. Okay. So then what would happen was evidently Schaefer, the impresario of Schaefer Beer had a daughter. And Raka, um, you know, there's a there's a little rule that I held to be true that um, opportunity plus desire equals humpage. Except Raka was not only long, he was horribly thick. And, you know, length you can get away with. Thickness you cannot get away with because the first inch is going to go, ah. So anyway, he put her in the hospital. And when Schaefer found out about it, and she just got an episiotomy from the first, you know, the first section of his thing. So um, Schaefer says, that's it. No more wrestling. F you guys and this and that, you know. And, uh, you know, that changed Raka's dick, changed the business, you know, because it was the end of Schaefer Beer sponsoring wrestling to go against Vince Sr. Think about that. That's, say, 62 or 63. Now, I'm working on a book now about the indie wrestling revolution. And one of the reasons why it was so easy to sell that is because, as you know, New Japan and Ring of Honor are have sold out Madison Square Garden during WrestleMania weekend. No one has sold out Madison Square Garden since 61, that very period when Schaefer Beer was running. Uh, no, no one besides the McMahons have sold out Madison Square Garden since 61, that very period when Schaefer Beer was sponsoring the opposition. Now, they didn't sell out the garden, but that was the last time uh, the, 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 uh, the industry looked like this to a certain extent. And, you know, as I mentioned, I did write a book with the Iron Sheik that wasn't published, I think, because the stories were so off color. It scared both WWE and the publisher away. But I was impressed that even when the Iron Sheik was really struggling, there were younger wrestlers who understood how talented he was, what a great shooter he was, what a great amateur wrestler he was, the price he paid for the business. And they treated him very lovingly. And they treated him like a father figure. And it was, you know, very touching to see that. And again, you hear all these dirty stories in the wrestling business. But the flip side of that is both the fans and a lot of the talent have respect for what came before, and they do pay it forward. For those that don't know, there was a thing called Woodstock. All we are saying is give peace a chance. And that was like their whole mantra, the whole thing. All we are saying is give peace a chance. So the Sheik got fired for drugs, you know, from the WWE. And then they put him in rehab and he came back and he got busted again. And he came back and busted again. And I don't know, his 100th time he came back, <laughs> he goes into TV 
and he and he's he's got that big smile and the big mustache and everything. And the boys started going, All we are saying is give Sheik a chance. <laughs> and that is probably the funniest thing I've ever heard in unison. You know, I remember Steve Taylor, the photographer, who you remember well. He was a WWE photographer and later he was in charge of the entire backstage operation for WWE. But I remember him backstage talking to the Sheik and saying, we tell Iron Sheik stories with you here. Imagine 30 years from now, people are still going to be telling stories about you. And they are. That's right. You know, and I'm just going to tell you right now the reason I cannot share in this uh, warm, fuzzy thing about the Iron Sheik. It's because one of my favorite, favorite, favorite people in the entire wrestling business is Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He was going to go straight up with a bullet. They had a push lined up for him that was incredible. He was getting over. The fans loved him. And then he made a terrible mistake by being nice to the Iron Sheik, uh, taking him to Asbury Park in New Jersey. Why don't you finish the story? I can't, because it, it makes me mad. I, I've had both. I've heard the story from both Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik. Uh, what happened was, and Duggan said, he didn't know the Iron Sheik all that well. They were feuding at the time. Now, in it, it, he did come from Bill Watts' territory. So he did know that baby faces and heels should not have been sharing the same vehicle in the midst of a feud, no less. Realize this was before anyone had come out and said the business was actually entertainment. It was called sports entertainment, but no one had actually let the genie out of the bottle. And they were driving down, I, I believe it was the Garden State Parkway, and um, they were drinking St. Pauli Girl beers. And uh, they were pulled over by the police. And of course, when the police looked in, searched the car, they found some cocaine that the Iron Sheik had been hiding. I think they were also smoking a little bit of weed, but it was the cocaine that really blew everything up. And um, the two, the two wrestled. They they got down to Asbury Park, and as Duggan told me. They spoke to the road agent, and this is before the internet, and they kind of thought, well, we, we made our shot, maybe nobody will know. And he said he goes to sleep at the hotel, gives his wife the number for the hotel, and in the morning his wife phones him from Louisiana and says it's all over the news. And uh, needless to say, both men were, were told in fact, the dressing room was told by Vince McMahon, neither man will ever work for WW, well, then WWF again. Vince McMahon did hire them both back eventually. Yeah, but the push that they gave Duggan was not the same push. You see what I mean? Yes. In other words, they pushed him with a little weighted belt on him. And, uh, oh, when he when he first came back, you know, and I hate to say this because I love Duggan, but they had banners Hacksaw Jim Druggan, which is like a play on words of the word drug and Duggan. So, um, and I hated it because, you know, Keith, I'll tell you what. Um, I know a lot of people in the wrestling business, but I only have 
I have a lot of acquaintances, but only a few friends. And um, you are one of them, but Hacksaw Jim Duggan is another one of them. You're not the only ones, but the number is sparse. Because, you know, um, people that I would really call up at three in the morning if I needed help. You see what I mean? That's the other list of friends. You see what I mean? Yes. Uh, I've never done it because I've never needed help at three in the morning to you. You're, you're more likely to be the person people call. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, yeah, I'll be right over and I'll roll over and go to back to bed. Okay, whatever. But uh, no, listen, it, it hurt me that Jim Duggan was finally getting the recognition he deserved. And then this happens just because he was too nice to say no to the Iron Sheik who was, you stupid motherfucker. You know what I mean? It's like, please. Um, it's a sad story for me, and I still feel badly about it, because Duggan, as great as he was, could have been even greater if that blemish hadn't occurred. I understand. When I became the genius, you know, uh, I went on Spanish TV, and I did a whole interview in Spanish, and he, he tried to... Um, work on my pronunciation. And I said, look, um, when I say um, Santana comes from Mexico, you hablo mucho mejor. Um, I speak better than Tito Santana. The fact that I don't speak better than Tito Santana is because El Genio is a heel. Right. The genius is a heel. If I really could, I'd be a baby face. Right. And that's, that's something that, and that's in the Blasi book, something Nikolai Volkov told me was that a good heel, according to Nikolai Volkov, is is exaggerating in a very obvious way. You don't want somebody, if Lanny Poffo, who is one of the smartest guys I know, truly flaunted that in a way that made the fans feel stupid, they might not be as excited about watching him. It's the fact that the genius got up there and said, Santana comes from Mexico, yo hablo mas mejor. It's like, he doesn't really speak Spanish. He just knows a sentence in Spanish. He's not really a genius. And that's what makes it fun for the fans. Well, I was recently in Japan where I did color commentary. And let me tell you what, I love those guys, all the wrestlers and all the promotion and the, you know, the, uh, the office from A to Z, um, what a what a great opportunity at my age to go there and do color commentary. And um, I decided to go about 20% heel. And I, I I was talking about all the languages that I spoke. And then I went, Ichi ni san shi go rokalichi hachi kuju, which is a very, very bad uh, pronunciation of counting to 10 in Japanese. You know, and then, but, but I mean, I acted like, of course, I could do all this. And of course... I couldn't, you know, <laughs> so I could, I can barely get my face lapped in another country. So my point is, when I became the genius, my, my hero was Peter Sellers in the Pink Panther. Of course, I knew that you idiot that was only testing you, you know, because that was a one joke movie. He was actually an idiot, but he called everybody else an idiot. And he tried to um, convey the fact that he was smarter than you. And I thought that was where the comedy was. And that's what the genius tried to be, is Peter Sellers as the Pink Panther without the accent. And uh, that was like 
you know, when I was thinking it over, I have to reinvent myself. That was the character that I chose. A lot of fans don't know this, but I was a poor man's Peter Sellers. Now, now when you say you decided to go 20% heel, what does that mean, 20% heel? Well, I didn't want to be of 100% heel, which was like, uh, you know, like, well, I was much better than these guys. These guys suck and all these, you know, that's that's 100% heel. Um I was, I just say, wow, what an ex- excellent move. You know, in my day, uh, we did it a little differently, you know, and I remember Mitsu Arakawa and Kinji Shibuya and they, you know, they were the blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? Right. In other words, I was slightly full of myself. Right. Right. And I, for, for comedy purposes, because if you're going to be a play by play, you do play by play. If you're going to do color, just think of all the great color people they've had in the past. Um, Jesse the Body Ventura. Bobby the Brain Heenan. This, that's to me color, you know, where they take the heels point of view or whatever. Except in Japan, it's a little different. The line between the heel and the baby face is a little blurred. Mm-hmm. And, and they have a thing called, um, oh, what do they call it? Uh, fighting spirit, you know, where boom, something goes down. You know what I mean? It's it's just hard to explain. Where they And they hit each other 100 times without selling it, you know, and then finally get blown up or whatever. Keith Elliott Greenberg, I know you're short on time. you got a lot to do, but I just wanted to thank you for being a fantastic guest. And do you have anything you want to plug? Thank you, Lanny, for having me on your show. And like I mentioned earlier, I've been working on a book on the indie wrestling revolution. I'm interested in talking to indie wrestlers, promoters, referees, whoever. I'd like to include you in my book, and you can contact me at IndieWrestlingRevolution at gmail.com. That's Indie, I-N-D-I-E, WrestlingRevolution at gmail.com. And once again, Lanny, it's a pleasure just talking to you. The pleasure is all mine. We'll talk soon. What a fantastic interview. Keith Elliott Greenberg. Man, those stories, you know, from Freddie Blassie getting his life saved by Bruno San Martino by the mob and Argentino Rocca. And Keith is a really good storyteller. Go on ProWrestlingStories.com. We got a couple pieces up there that actually cover some of those stories from Dr. Jerry Graham stealing his mother from the hospital and... Bruno Sammartino saving Freddie's life. Just go over to the site and hit the search bar and you'll be able to find those stories there. But really amazing stories. I could listen to him talk for hours. I'll tell you what, um, I have enjoyed the friendship I've shared with Keith Elliott Greenberg for many, many years. And uh, when Randy passed away, he wrote the definitive article on the Macho Man. The article you're talking about is called The Final Days of Randy Macho Man Savage. I remember reading this after your brother passed away. It's a really fantastic read. You can find it on Bleacher Report. So if you do a Google search and just do uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg, Randy Savage, it should be the first one that pops up. But Keith, wonderful person, great interview. Thank you for being on our show. He's a brilliant man, I'll tell you that much. And if you look at him, he looks like a rock star. He could be like Frank Zappa. Yes, he's uh, married with uh, two kids and a very, very happily married guy. And he's been a freelance writer all these years, and uh, he even writes for NBC television. Well, that's fantastic. I'm a freelance writer myself, so it gives us little men hope. 
We're going to go to our fan questions of the week. Dylan Apple wrote in on Twitter after watching a Randy Savage and Bob Orton Jr. promo with them talking about their upcoming match against Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens, which came from an ICW taping in 1980. You can see this and other great content shared by Alan Cheapshot. That's A-L-L-A-N underscore Cheapshot Twitter account. Dylan asks, how was the relationship with your dad, Patterson, and Stevens? It was great with Ray Stevens, not so good with Pat Patterson. And... Here's the deal. When Randy and Bob Orton Jr. were challenging Ray and Pat, what happened was we got our tape, the ICW tape, into the California area. And, of course, um, the MO that Randy believed in was you get a new TV, you challenge the top stars of the other promotion. And since Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson were the top stars, that's who Randy challenged. And... Uh, that way, it instantly made him, you know, a player in the new market. We're going to go to our next question. This is from N.A. Available on Twitter, and he asks, I've seen some older folders of you on the Genius Cast Twitter account, at the Genius Cast, and got to ask, what's the story behind the Killer Bees-esque trunks? Believe it or not, I have racked my brain every single day of my life trying to come up with a gimmick that gets over. Sometimes it was yellow and black striped trunks. And, you know, to be a killer bee. And sometimes it was a suit of armor. And sometimes it was a cap and gown. And I'll tell you what, if I ever find a gimmick that works, I'm going to use it. When we had Brian Blair on our show, episode four, he talks about how you had those trunks in a bag. And, you know, you reached in, threw it over to him. And that's actually the first pair of trunks he wore as a killer bee. That's right. And I had silver trunks as a spare. Um, and I wore those. So um, I wasn't trunkless. I, I was a, still able to hide my loins. At WWWF on Twitter asks, I watched an old match of yours recently, and I think it was in Memphis, and they billed you out of St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. I know you fought in the city, but did you ever actually live there? Never did, but I thought it sounded very nightly, and I was wearing a night outfit. St. John's, New Brunswick sounded very nightly. Yeah, it's got to be because of the saint. Yes, at Trashbag Ghost on Twitter wrote in sharing a picture of your brother talking with Donald Trump at Trump Plaza. I'm assuming the photo was promoting one of the WrestleManias that was held there. He writes, I asked a question from a place of deep respect and non-curiosity. Can you shed any light on the content of that exchange? Because it's been on my mind for over three years now. Thank you. I wasn't in that WrestleMania with Randy. And um, I, didn't, I wasn't in Trump Plaza either year to my discredit. And Randy said that uh, Donald Trump was very, very nice to him both times. You know, you read things online from wrestlers, Mark Henry, Steve Austin, whoever's worked with him, actually said he was a professional and, and, and fun to work with. You know, like political opinions aside, you know, he did have a lot to do with the WWE. And, you know, that's one of those. I saw that photo and it is interesting. You do wonder what they were talking about. It was probably like, hey, how you doing? Come in, let's take this photo. <laughs> well, the thing is, Randy never broke character, ever. And uh, for all Donald Trump knows, Randy acted like that all the time, okay? Because um, Randy believed in his gimmick. And actually, on a previous show, you played the video where he didn't have his voice yet. And that... That's right. That was, ab that was in our last episode. That was absolute proof that that voice was put on. But guess what? When you're always pretending, the reality becomes real. See what I mean? The pretend becomes, if you're always doing it, that's your new voice. I always imagine this 
type of voice being something he had from childhood, like in class, raising his hand. Yes, miss, I'd like to uh, answer the question. Two times two is four. Oh, yeah. But I'll tell you what, that's not baloney. Uh, Randy was on the National Honor Society and the National Athletic Honor Society. Very tough act to follow. Did you ever help you with your studies? He helped me get into the WWE. That was good enough. Yeah, that's all the studies you need. Brian Fagan asks, At the Royal Rumble 92, Lanny was in the corner of the Beverly Brothers against the Bushwhackers who had Jameson. Lanny, what are your memories of Jameson, and did he annoy you as much as he annoyed fans over the years rewatching that pay-per-view? Love the podcast. Thank you for loving our podcast, and Jameson never annoyed me at all. He was, uh, he had a Wally Cox gimmick. I had a Peter Sellers gimmick. We just, we're just doing our gimmicks. Seemed to have worked. I'll tell you what, I loved every moment of it, even if it didn't get over. Emma from Scotland wrote in with another great question. She wrote in last week, and you actually called her a genius, which she thought was brilliant. She says, I heard Bruce Pritchard tell a story where the Macho Man and Elizabeth characters, when they separated on screen in the late 80s and early 90s, Randy got a legal separation to protect kayfabe. I was wondering if they had to avoid being seen together at all times during that era, and if Lanny has any funny stories when they had to pretend they weren't a married couple in real life. Uh, No, their divorce was real. Their separation was real. Everything was real. Their marriage was real. Uh, Randy got married to Elizabeth. Let's see, December 31st of 1984, and then in June of 85, Randy went to the WWF, and then three months later, uh, he brings her out as Miss Elizabeth. So that's about the size of that. So when they were obviously in storyline separated, they weren't married anymore in real life either. I don't remember. You know, I tried to distance myself from the stench. All I can tell you is this. Boy meets girl. Boy marries girl. Girl gets divorce lawyer. Takes boy to cleaners. Girl dies of drug overdose. Boy dies of heart attack. There you go. We're going to go on to one last question. This comes from David Wayne Signorino. He's been asking a lot of questions on our Facebook page at the Genius Cast. He's been asking about the ICW library, the tape library. Who has it? Is there any chance of it ever being released in digital format? There is no tape library. I don't have a tape library. I don't know where a tape library is. And that's the story. You can keep asking every week, but the answer is going to be the same. There is no tape library. So there we go, guys. We did talk about this on last week's show as well. So if you know anyone who's got the ICW content, you know, we're looking for full episodes, you know, as full of product as possible. If you got anything on this, give us an email at thegeniuscast at prowrestlingstories.com and we'll share it out. We want the fans of ICW to see this great stuff. But as far as I know and as far as you know, all the best stuff's already out there. That's right. All you got to do is search ICW on YouTube. And I know they've got best of DVDs as well. And I think you can get volume one and volume two real cheap for under $20. So have a look at that with the holidays coming up. And with that said, that's the end of our Genius Cast episode. Lanny, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to get some sleep. And what are you up to these next few days? Oh, I am going to be spinning my wheels and uh, wasting time. I'm going to be getting 10 hours of sleep followed by 14 hours of relaxation every single day of the rest of my life. You have earned it. Before we end this show, you mentioned you had a lot of Newfoundland songs. I want to hear another one. You ask me what I like about the Maritimes. 
be it Nova Scotia or PEI. From the borders of New Brunswick to the shores of Newfoundland, it's Cape Breton Island forever. Country roads and changing weather. It's the spirit of the people who share this land. It's a big feed of lobster. It's a cold half pint in my hand. It's a quarter to one and the fun's just begun. Playing Song of the Myra and a good time band. I just want to say not as the genius, not as Leaping Lanny, as Lanny Poffo. Thank you to all the fans that made this genius cast a big success. It's a lot of fun to do. I hope it's fun to listen to. We can't thank you enough, guys. And thank you to everyone who's already left a five-star review on iTunes. Every single one of those is going to help our show grow. If you haven't done so already, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Genius Cast. We're going to be using those accounts to keep the Poffo family memory alive. We had a lot of fun this week, and we can't wait to bring you a new Genius Cast each Monday, so don't forget to subscribe. I'm JP Zarka, and you can find me on Twitter at JP Zarka, that's Z like zebra, A R K A. That's it for now. So long and goodbye. You've been listening to the Genius Cast with Lanny Poffo. This has been a ProWrestlingStories.com production. Find them on social media at the Genius Cast, at Lanny Poffo, or at JP Zarka. If you'd like to advertise to thousands of dedicated listeners on the show each week, send an email to the Genius Cast at ProWrestlingStories.com. Until next time.